who will share their top three all-time favourite books. Melanie Chang is a writer and general practitioner from Melbourne. Her writing has been published in The Age, The Weekend Australian, SBS Online, Mianjin, Overland, Griffith Review and lots more. Melanie's short story collection, Australia Day, won the 2016 Victorian Premier's Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript and went on to win the 2018 Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Fiction. Her latest book, published in 2019, is the novel that I loved, and you will too. It's called Room for a Stranger. Welcome to your desert island, Melanie. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. How are you enjoying it here on the island? It's beautiful. Yeah, a bit windy on the way, but now the sun's come out. It's beautiful. Mm. Can I get you a ginger beer or some other pineapple juice? I'd love that. Coconut water that seems to be so hot (laughs) right now. It cures all ailments, you can trust me. <laughs> Does it really? What are they putting no. in the coconuts? What is this magical coconut water? Like, are there waters in other fruit? Like, I have many questions. Me too, actually. Yeah. yeah. It could be a research project. Right? So there's like apple juice and orange juice, but coconuts have water. So like where else? There's watermelon has But they have water, water and milk. Oh, you're doing my head in now. <laughs> and cream. All of the things, and then then it's not an animal, but you can still can you get butter? Is there coke? You can get there coconut is. butter. I think so. Yeah, cocoa yeah. butter because you can you can lather it on your. It's a really good moisturizer, and you yeah. smell like a tropical island. You smell like a desert island. There we go. Brought it <laughs> Great back. Great segue. Nailed it. Moving forward with life and with our conversation, <laughs> um, Melanie, you've brought some books with you today on I your have. desert island in your waterproof suitcase. Thank you for being thoughtful. Um, and I wonder if you could please reveal for us the title and author of book one. My brilliant career by Miles Franklin. Thank you for choosing this book. I have been ready to talk to somebody about this book for a long oh, time. Oh, great. Please talk to me about it. Sure. Um, so I grew up in Hong Kong, but my mum's originally from Australia and she had this kind of fear, I think, that I wouldn't know anything about her home country of Australia. So her remedy to this was to feed me a lot of Australian books and my brilliant career was one of these books. And I was reading it as a teenager and so my schooling was the British system. So I was reading a lot of Jane Austen at the time, you know, through school. But what I loved about my brilliant career was that it was such a different narrative from the traditional Jane Austen novel. And the the Jane Austen novel we were studying at the time was Mansfield Park, which has, I don't know oh if dear. you've read it, but... <laughs> I've read enough of it. <laughs> the uh, main protagonist there, Fanny Price, is... is, is Almost the antithesis to, um, you know, Sibylla from My Brilliant Career. She's quite passive and accepting of her fate and waiting for, yes, a man to rescue her. And so to read My Brilliant Career with this really sassy, feisty, um, larger-than-life female lead who is not 
searching for a man has quite, you know, contradictory feelings towards love, but ultimately um, sets her sight on a writing career. That just kind of blew me away, actually, at the time. It was actually the first book I'd read about a female writer as well, and I think it spoke to something deep inside me. You know, at that time I hadn't really realised that I wanted to be a writer, but perhaps that little seed was there starting to grow and so it really appealed to me. So we, you would have been a similar age to um, to Sibylla when you were reading it. She was yeah. a, in her late teens. You would have been in your, you said, te- a teenager yeah. when you were reading it too. Yeah, about 16, something like, like that. Yeah. Like kind of... Um, it sparks something in you when you can find yourself in a main character. And someone like Sibylla, who was so, as you say, sassy and headstrong, the quotes in this book, like the insults that she flings around and her wit and the way she sees the roles for women in society Mm. in 1901 when it was published and written shortly before that, kind of, it's quite remarkable. Yeah, it really is. And what I really love about... Her character is that kind of contradictory nature, and I think you know at a, a at that adolescent age you're full of conflict, you know, and I was feeling similar things, you know, about wanting to be liked by the popular boy at school, but actually also really kind of rejecting that notion as well. And I think, um, yeah. Miles Franklin really did such an amazing job at capturing that um, particularly. And I think the other thing is ordinarily at that age I wouldn't take much notice of the authors of books. I just read books. Often I couldn't even recall the names of authors. But, um, yeah, I, I think it was my mum who, who mentioned to me about how, you know, Miles Franklin was actually not a, a male author as I had originally believed um and that intrigued me too that you know that that she'd use the pseudonym because just to get published and then I started to wonder um as many did about how much of this book was actually autobiographical and that kind of fascinated me so it was one of those books that you think about long after you finish and I did read the secret the, the um, sequel as well, My Career Goes Bung, um, which I didn't enjoy as quite as much, but, you know, I was just wanting that feeling again to recapture that and revisit these characters. Mm. Yeah, There's so much um, folklore around the publishing of this book, mm-hmm. um, the way she sent the manuscript to Henry Lawson mm. for his approval and if he thought it was good enough, she wanted him to pass it on to his publisher. Yeah. Um, and then there's the... Um, all of the feedback she got in her community after it was published because she she did write so autobiographically, mm. didn't do very well at hiding or dis- disguising some of the people that she talked about in the book. And so, of course, when they read it, were horrified to see themselves yeah. writ large like that. Um, she was quite embarrassed. And so she put a, um, a halt on further publication of My Brilliant Career until after she passed away. Yeah, so there was a whole actually, period of yeah. time where it was not even available to read. Um, and uh, she passed away in 1954. Um, 
And so my career goes bang. She wrote immediately after my brilliant career, but that wasn't published for the first time until 1946. Mm. So there are these big gaps between writing and publication and then between publication and, and republication. And it's a book that would have gone out of print because it sold so well mm. Um, mm. and had a lot of support, but she felt somehow ashamed of it. And then she wrote poetry for a while. Was it Brent from Bin Bin or something? She used another kind okay. of wild pseudonym yeah. where she was publishing poetry or short stories, I think, in um, in newspapers. And she lived in the US and the UK and she travelled around um, a bit in her life. Um, but yeah. yeah, I remember um, when I read it, when I initially thought it was written by a man, I, I, I even then I was struggling to believe that it that a man could get so into the head of a, you know, adolescent girl. And it made complete sense to me when my mum revealed that actually it wasn't a male author. Not to say that male authors have never written a convincing female character. Of course they had, but um, this just seemed to have such depth of insight into that state. And I guess because I was reading it at a similar time in my life, it was just quite amazing to me. Yeah. Could you read something aloud from the introduction oh, for sure. me? I know we haven't rehearsed this, but I think you're going to be fine. This paragraph here was written by Henry Lawson. That was his reaction to the book. Okay. I hadn't read three pages when I saw what you will no doubt see at once, that the story had been written by a girl. And as I went on, I saw that the work was Australian, born of the bush. I don't know about the girlishly emotional parts of the book. I leave that to girl readers to judge. But the descriptions of bush life scenery came startlingly, painfully real to me. And I know that, as far as they are concerned, the book is true to Australia, the truest I ever read. Henry Lawson mm. on reading my brilliant career for the first time. Just he was like, like it's obviously a girl, and I don't get, <laughs> I don't get the girly bits. They're for girls, but it's almost like he's a, you know, apologising <laughs> for the for those bits. He'd be too ashamed to reveal that he could, you know, relate, um, relate to that at all. Any yeah, connection to, and That's it is right. 1901, and you know, with the, it's a different world now. Yeah, um, but I just love that. Like I knew it once it was a girl and I really don't get those bits, but the bits about the Australian <laughs> bush, oh my gosh, they're truer than any Australian bush writing I've ever read before in my life, which is really high praise considering it's, it a, is, it's a backhanded yeah. compliment is yeah, what he's doing there. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so that was his impression of the book and he obviously felt so strongly about it. He did pass it on to his publishers and that's how it was initially published mm. through, through him. Yeah. And I wonder what she would think now, you know, of her legacy and especially how I believe it had this resurgence in the kind of 70s yes. together with the feminist movement because I think of the the narrative um, and her pursuing a career in preference to, although it be a failing career, um, in preference to, to the traditional marriage. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it's sad that she never got to see that. Um, but it has definitely stood the test of time. And now to see the second prize, the Stella, um, yeah. come after the, the Miles Franklin as well. Um, well, the Miles Franklin prize, which she bequeathed a sum of money to establish that prize, was won by men for a mm. very long time. The irony was not lost on female writers yeah. <laughs> across the country. <laughs> of course. Um, but, yeah, the establishment of the Stella prize, which is uh, – 
Miles Franklin's first actual first name. Stella Maria Sarah Miles Franklin is yeah. her full name. Yes. Let's give her all five of those names yeah. that she has. Um, but yeah, that, that Stella Prize is um, it, it not only shines a light on Australian writing, but it also does a great deal of research about um, how Australian female writers are represented in the media. Mm. So they do a great deal of research into how many female writers are reviewed, how many reviewers are female, what percentage of books um you know, across um, not just print publications but online publications as well. Some of that research is fascinating. Mm. And because it's been done over a number of years, there's this real build-up of data where you can see um, you can see sharp increases up so you can see yeah. more and more female writers being reviewed. And I think sometimes you need a little bit of light on on that, on that kind of thing. How I mean, a, a newspaper is printing every day. How often do they stop and go back through their back issues and start to... How many female journalists do we have? How many, what's the gender balance of staff? What's the gender balance of, you know, books that we're reviewing, directors that we're talking about, artists and musicians that we're interviewing? They don't have that sort of self-reflection. So it's really nice that the Stella Prize does that research component as well as has the prize. And I think that's, yeah, the the awareness of it. Um, It's that unconscious bias thing that... You know, as long as it's unconscious, yeah. we can't do much about it. But it's about bringing it to the consciousness so that, yeah, you suddenly realise, oh, there are these huge discrepancies and how did that come about? Um, I mean, the fact that that is happening, you know, now in 2019 still, um, you know, so long after this book was originally published, I guess is quite depressing in some ways, <laughs> um, but also highlights that what she was doing at the time was so extraordinary as well, mm. you know, to to go against the trend. And, I mean, this this book, whilst, you know, a lot of the details may be outdated now, the I think the essential core narrative still rings very true. I mean, for me... As a 16-year-old growing up in Hong Kong, of all places, like such a a different world from the Australian bush, if I could read this book, um, you know, in the 90s and feel this strong relationship to this this character, um, I mean, I think that that's really quite magical and a testament to her her abilities as a writer. It really is um, a universal book, yeah. Now, had your mum read it before she yeah, did it to you? Yeah. And she still did. She was like, here's a feminist text written <laughs> written 90 years ago and I want you to follow the path of this rebellious young woman. Yeah. I no, love that so much. I mean, my mum basically, um, yeah, curated most of my reading. Not, you know, not in a very kind of deliberate way, but she would, it was more in it just an enthusiastic kind of, this book is wonderful, read this. I love and, that so um, much. As I said, part of it was motivated by, you know, no a little bit about you know where I'm from but a lot of it was was just um this this want you know wish to share share the love um of these books so yeah you know it wasn't just um my brilliant career but it was you know um I can jump puddles and a town like Alice and all these kind of books but I think my brilliant career particularly stood out um to me because of that central yeah Sibylla really yeah. 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 I love that. And you're probably at a time in your life trying to choose what you were going to do for your brilliant career. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, my parents were always about, 
focusing on education and you know, certainly, if anything, my father said, please don't ever get married until you're at least 30. And <laughs> you know that stuff. So it was quite the opposite of, of um, you know, the Jane Austen <laughs> novels. Um, but, yeah, uh, I, I just... I'd like to actually go back and read it again. I think I'd, um, when maybe over even these Christmas holidays, when I have a bit more time to do my pleasure reading rather than my work reading, it would be nice to to revisit that. Definitely. I would I would highly recommend it. I think I read it for the third time. Oh, wow. For our podcast and absolutely loved it. Fell in love with Sibylla all over again. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah, it's a truly beautifully written book. Yeah, and even because of what Henry Lawson says, I'd love to, you know, revisit those descriptions of the Australian bush mm. um, with all its brutality as well as its beauty and, you know, now from the perspective of a writer because mm -hmm. I, you know, when I was reading it originally, I was a teenager not writing the odd bit of terrible teenage poetry, but um, hopefully I have have <laughs> improved my craft a little bit since then. So I think I'd see different things, you know, and maybe like look at the mechanics of it a little bit more because you do read differently when you're, you're writing as well. Absolutely. You appreciate different things about books. Yeah. Um, in some ways, I feel like you don't allow yourself to be immersed in the story as much as when you are in that adolescent age I mean mm. I do look back on those years and and think that oh I wish I could I could just surrender to a book in the way I used to I think it's partly because over those long summer holidays I had great swathes of time and I could just read and only read come up for food and go back to read whereas now life is busy and you can't do that to some degree mm. but I have yeah so um so I think part of that is that this book was one of the books I read during that you know really great window of time where I think you find the books that really shape you at at, at that moment of your life. Yeah, yeah, they're the ones that stay with you. Yeah. Speaking of books that have stayed with you, I think there are a few more for us to talk about. So could you kindly reveal the title and author of book two? Sure. The Kitchen God's Wife by Amy Tan. <sighs> You're just getting a big sigh from me and then the floor is yours. Please tell me <laughs> all about – I loved this book, so, but please tell me how it made your list. Sure. Um, so The Kitchen God's Wife, I probably read maybe – a little bit earlier than I would have read my brilliant career. Um, I was in Hong Kong, yeah, at the time, so growing up there. Um, so my father is originally from Hong Kong. My mum's from Australia, as I said. Um, and so we were very familiar with this kind of cross-cultural, mixed-race heritage. Um, and I think I'd never really seen that depicted in a book that I'd read before reading The Kitchen God's Wife. Um, and so I was immediately, you know, just in, enchanted with this book when I started reading it because some of the characters just, just I recognised them. Um, and so Pearl, who is the um, one of the main characters, she is is a, you know, first generation migrant um, and she's kind of dealing with the 
the straddling two cultures and also straddling, you know, generations. Um, and so she's caught between cultures in some ways. And I think that was something that um, I really related to. Um, and Winnie, who's the other main um, narrator in the story, who's her, her mother, um, her story really reminded me a lot of my own Chinese grandmother's kind of story. Um, so there were a lot of features that were quite similar there. She, she experienced the Japanese occupation, which my grandmother did, and she'd lost children during the war, which um, my grandmother did as well. Quite similarly, a, still, a stillbirth and then a, a, a young child um, from illness during the war. And so I think, um, yeah, I felt like I was kind of reading about my family and to see that representation in a book after so long of not seeing it um, it's just this really deep and profound um, connection that you have with a book and um, while I appreciate it's not a literary novel for me it will always be an important novel in showing me that um, these stories matter and that they have a place and the reception to this book was quite huge. It was a bestseller. Um, and so I think on some level I realised that, you know, people were entertained and enjoyed these stories and that they had value. And um, and I think for me as a writer later on, I, th I think, you know, at the time I wasn't thinking in this in these terms, but I, I think you do hold these experiences and they should later shape you. And um, for someone who does write about um, Chinese characters, I think this just taught, gave me permission in a way to do that later on. Um, yeah, so that's why I really love this book. I was enthralled from the first page and I could barely put it down for the weekend that I read it during. That was not a sentence. That's okay. <laughs> That's how it came out. We can keep going. Um, but I'm interested in something you said about it not being literary. What makes you say that? I mean, I mean, it's not sort of highfalutin flowery language. Mm, it's pretty, mm. it, like it's straightforward and, and clear language. But I, I think of it as a literary novel. It's a you know, multi-generational family saga and there's like love and loss and trauma and the experiences of women and I think, yeah, I think I of it as a literary read but maybe I'm thinking about it in a different way. I, I think at the time perhaps the reception was that it was, um, I guess perhaps because it was so successful and then, I mean the Joy Luck Club I think was her first book was, um, yeah. and I didn't, I didn't actually ever read the Joy Luck Club. I ended up seeing the film later on. But for me, Amy Tan was the kitchen author of The Kitchen God's Wife because that was my first experience of her. Yeah. And so, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think she writes beautifully and I particularly love the way she writes dialogue. Mm. And, again, that was something, the nature of the dialogue of um, the interactions between Pearl and Winnie in particular um, I, f I found to be very authentic. These were kind of um, conversations I'd been privy to a lot of my life at, you know, big Chinese restaurants and things, you know, because inevitably in families that do migrate, there are people who speak 
um, Chinese to varying degrees, and so there's always a bit of you know English thrown in here, and some people don't speak any Chinese at all, some people don't speak any English, and there's these these people kind of being these cultural brokers in between and it's like all everything's going on and there's hand gestures and other things and it's all in the mix and she kind of captures that quite beautifully um as well as um you know pearl is married to a um a a caucasian american Mm. and so you know that relationship i thought was um also portrayed in a very um realistic way Again, you know, from having observed the interactions between my parents at home and my mum kind of complaining about, well, why does your mum have to call every time, you know, we get back from overseas to check that you're okay? And, you know, why is, you know, like, why do we have to give money in red packets to everyone anytime, you know, these kind of just little, um, you know, obligations that come with culture that, you know, she didn't really understand, but now she's she's completely au fait with and <laughs> knows them probably better than some some you know chi- second generation Chinese people in Australia. So um, yeah, I I just loved seeing those little details um, depicted. I think yeah yeah yeah. I loved the relationship between um, Winnie and Helen. As mm-hmm. they as they navigated wartime in China, yeah, that that sort of um, not sibling, but sort of almost what is that bond called when there's unconditional love between two people? You just decided. I guess it's friendship, but it wasn't really a warm sort of. It wasn't mm. friendship as we know it. Yeah, but the bond between those two women was significant. Um, and I think that was my favourite part of the book is the way they continued to love and support each other even though they they really disagreed about almost everything. Yeah. <laughs> and yet they were friends for life and remained friends, you know, beyond yeah. their last page of the book. Yeah. And Helen's so crucial to the whole plot of the story really because yes. she's the one that's um, actually – forcing them, the the mother and daughter, to open up to each other. Both are harbouring deep secrets and um, Helen actually kind of tricks them into revealing their secrets to each other. She does. um, Because she realises that um, I think that the truth will actually help them bond. Yes. Um, What a missed opportunity if they don't don't open up to each other, particularly at that point in their lives. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, just recently I'd seen the movie The Farewell. I don't know if you'd caught it. It's, I haven't um, yet, but I'll add it to the list. Would yes. you recommend it? Oh, I would. Okay, it's my favourite movie of this year. But it um, is about, again, a Chinese-American family and it centres around a big secret, which is that the ch- the grandmother is dying. It's got Aquafina in it. Aquafina, yes. yes. And um, okay, Lulu yes. Wang is the director. Um, yeah, so um, so it centers around this secret and um, it just deals with how each generation kind of reconciles with this and 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 um, you know raises the ethical issues without being judgmental, I think. Um, and I, I think that when I came back to looking at this book in preparation for today, um, I realized that that, that was something that Amy Tan was also dealing with um, in terms of 
these familial secrets and um, what motivates someone to keep these secrets. And um, it again spoke to me later on in my life as well with my Chinese grandmother. She was not told that she had cancer. And this, this is something that's done very commonly in Hong Kong and in many parts of Southeast Asia. And um, so, yeah, just this idea of of secrets, which I think many books actually deal with, but to have it in this specific cultural context, um, mm. I found, yeah, quite fascinating. Yeah. And was there was never a movie of The Kitchen Gods, no, right? No, I, I don't feel think like so. It, it may have gone into production or they may have started a script or something, but I read that it... Um, it never got off the ground. And it was right on the back of the success of not just the book but the film of The Joy Luck Club. Mm. The Amy, Amy Tan was involved in the film as well, I think, um, like a script advisor or dialogue coach or something. She was part of that. She part of the production of the film. Um, and then The Kitchen God's Wife was her second novel. Um, and again, huge commercial success but the film never, mm. never got up. And did I read somewhere that it wasn't since – the Joy Luck Club, that a, a full Asian cast right. film until Crazy Rich was Asians. made until yeah, yeah, that's a long time that between is a drinks. Very long time. <laughs> it's a it's an absurd long time. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's about um. time, <laughs> right? Well, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And even if you think of a hugely successful Chinese American author um, since Amy Tan, you know, best selling a nothing. In, no one comes to mind straight away, except for Kevin. Yeah, Kevin, Kevin Kwan. Kwan. Yeah, so that's there must also be. A long there time. must be. I, I have some research yeah. to do. I'll get back to you <laughs> about that. But obviously not. Um, certainly not celebrated in the way that Amy yeah, was with yeah, a film made really of her was. book yeah, straight away right. or Kevin. So yeah. And, and yeah, not between. Yeah, not yeah. between. Okay, the farewell is on the list. Um, the film and the kitchen's god the kitchen god's wife i'm going to imagine what everybody looks like and make it a play in my head <laughs> do, you, do you do that when you read it yeah you yeah that's why when you see the film it's um it's okay. sometimes really irritating because the the actor doesn't match your imagination yeah um, it can be quite jarring can't yeah, it yeah did you have a a part of this book that you I wanted do. to read aloud yeah i like it very much when you read aloud just saying <laughs> compliment you while you're sitting opposite me. Please read to me, Melanie. To this day, it drives me crazy listening to my mother's various hypotheses, the way religion, medicine and superstition all merge with her own beliefs. She puts no faith in other people's logic. To her, logic is a sneaky excuse for tragedies, mistakes and accidents. And according to my mother, nothing is an accident. She's like a Chinese version of Freud, or worse. Everything has a reason. Everything could have been prevented. The last time I was at her house, for example, I knocked over a framed picture of my father and broke the glass. My mother picked up the shards and moaned, Why did this happen? I thought it was a rhetorical question at first, but then she said to me, Do you know? It was an accident, I said. My elbow bumped into it. And of course, her question had sent my heart racing, wondering if my clumsiness was a symptom of deterioration. Why this picture, she muttered to herself. So I never told my mother. 
At first, I didn't want to hear her theories on my illness, what caused this to happen, how she should have done this or that to prevent it. I did not want her to remind me. So I chose that piece because, again, that was something that really resonated with me um, growing up um, around my extended Chinese family because it, it that that's so true there always is some kind of underlying reason for something um, if you get a cold it's because you ate this thing or you know any nothing is accidental according to the superstition so to the point where because I mentioned that my grand grandparents lost a child during the war and you know, if, for instance, a bird would sit on my grandfather's windowsill, he he knew that that was his long-lost daughter come back to visit him and he would chat to chat away to it. So nothing, you know, whether it's a, a moth flying through the, the room or, you know, glass breaking, everything has is weighted with meaning. And she captured that so beautifully, I thought, in that, in that, in that paragraph. Um, and so that's why I, I love that. Quote, yeah. But also, why not? Why not find meaning in nature and the things around us? Yeah, um, I know. I think being a scientific person, it's something that, you know, I struggle with too sometimes because I think um, on the one hand, you know, we do find causes for illness but on the other hand you can't be a doctor and not appreciate the randomness of life yes um and I think often people in the health profession more than anyone know that life is just full of uncertainty and trauma and tragedy can strike at any time and to live with that is is quite anxiety provoking, actually. Right, and if you yeah. want to talk to a bird, then just go right ahead and yeah. talk to that bird. Yeah, Who I mean, how beautiful to imagine that it's your long lost exactly. daughter come back to visit you. Who says I it's mean, not? I mean, it's beautiful. Um, yeah, and like, how comforting to you, know you that. can't prove that it isn't. Yeah, so, no. So exactly. why why would you discount yeah. that it that it could possibly be? Yeah, exactly. Oh, joy where you find it, really. <laughs> <laughs> so from from you know because my mother and I read this around the same time actually, oh, right. um, and so any time in in the family where we'd have moments like this of my grandfather talking to a bird or something else, we'd just look at each other and say, "Oh, the kitchen god's wife," <laughs> and <laughs> and you know too. she she and she'd also say, "You have to write a book about this <laughs> one day." <laughs> And you do. I'm ready for that. I'm absolutely ready to read that. I will spend another glorious weekend on the couch with your next book. Because I think, um, you know, for my dad who's in that culture, he doesn't find any of this stuff kind of um, magical or extraordinary. It's just that's, of course, that's that's how things um, unfold. Whereas I guess my mum's more of the outsider and I'm kind of on the outside too. And so we see the the beauty and the um, the kind of eccentricity of it all. And, um, yeah, it's nice to celebrate that too. Mm, it's yeah. a good place to be in between. It can be. It can be. You belong yeah. to both but you're observational about each. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's great for a writer. Mm, absolutely. I think when, when you grow up in that space, sometimes you can feel a little bit lost and because um, all you want to do when you're younger is to fit in. But as you grow older, you realise fitting in is not, not the, 
not the be all and end all. In fact, it's probably quite good not to fit in. Correct. Um, <laughs> and that no one really fits in in the end. Yes. Um, Big picture. Well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's talk more about reading and books. Shall we progress to your third choice? Could you please reveal yes. the title and author of book three? The Slap by Christos Choikos. Thank you for sending me backwards in time because I loved spending more time with this book again. I had read it, but I went back and celebrated it. I feel like I've been engulfed in the slap again <laughs> and I'm grateful to you. Tell me about how this book came into your life. So um, I read this book after I'd come to Melbourne to study medicine. I think when I read it I was actually a junior doctor so or maybe even I'd gone into general practice. So I was working in the in the West at the time and I was starting to write as well. Um, so this book arrived at a really important time for me, um, kind of a turning point, I guess. I'd been for a long time writing stories and um, trying to emulate some of the writing that I was seeing that kept winning short story competitions, for instance. So writing, I guess, a little bit more like Miles Franklin about bush and you know um, really beautiful detailed descriptions of Australian landscape and the surf and I just couldn't write that stuff I tried really hard <laughs> to emulate that but you know I, I knew it was not ringing true because that wasn't my experience um, you know I just I just didn't have enough of that 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 inherent knowledge of those places in order to write about them in a in a convincing way and then when I read the slap and because I was working in the west at the time the western suburbs of Melbourne I just thought oh my goodness this is these are the people that I am actually seeing in my work and I've never actually seen this depicted in Australian books before and I think and then I, I saw that it was being so well received and, um, you know, a lot of people were reading it and I thought, oh, so I can actually maybe also write about these stories. Um, and, I mean, I talked about permission before, you know, with, with Amy Tan's work, I think, um, to read Christos' book and I was it was so compelling. I, I just, I don't know how long it took, a very short time to get through it. I just wanted to know what happened and... Um, yeah, so I, I, I then just completely changed what I did with my writing and, and that was when I found my voice, I think, mm. because I started writing about the characters I was, the people I was seeing in my work and also in my life living in, you know, in a city, Melbourne, um, and it just felt right. Um, and so I thank Christos for that because... <laughs> Does he know? Have you had the chance to I have, I have. Um, yeah, which is really lovely. And, you know, he wrote an endorsement for my first book. Yes, So it was really, yeah, it, that meant a lot to me um, for this reason. Um, and so it was interesting to see how kind of controversial the book was as well. I feel like it is a book that really divides people. Mm -hmm. um, people either really love it or they really hate it. Um, and, you know, I think perhaps that's also a, a sign of a really 
good book. Um, I, I remember watching, I think, the ABC book show about it and I can't remember who it was that really hated it. But then even when he really hated it, he admitted that, oh, well, maybe if a book can, you know, you know, get these emotions in me, then it's it's a also testament to the quality of the writing or the the subject matter as well. So yeah. yeah, and it's a book that's divisive in not just whether people enjoyed reading it or not, but also whether you like whose side are you on. That whole tagline, oh, yeah, exactly that tagline about the book. So there's a situation where an adult slaps a child at a barbecue. It's quite it's in the title. It's not a spoiler. Mm. However the events that unfold from there and, and all of the characters in the book, there really is a side-taking process that happens for every individual character. And the structure of the book is brilliant because it's eight chapters told by eight different central characters who were at the barbecue and either witnessed or were there when it happened but didn't see what happened. And yet um, you, ta- you take a small, a small community like 15 people at a barbecue and then the ripples that go through mm. that community of, of whose side are you on, mm. um, it really pits people against each other who were otherwise quite friendly beforehand. <laughs> you just pop one controversial act in there and suddenly it's a completely divisive environment. So the book itself divides the characters along the whose side are you on mm. lines. Mm. But then it also divides readers, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. And... I think one other thing that I really like about Christos' work is that, I mean, he's just unflinching in his scrutiny of the characters. Mm. Um, And some people don't like that because they like a character to root for Mm. and they really want a sympathetic character. Um, And that's that's the criticism that I've read, you know, around that from on Goodreads and and things like that. There wasn't a character, a single character I liked. But I think also I found that to be so kind of authentic as well, like because especially when I was working, you know, in that kind of community where Christos set the book, um, you know, and as a GP you're privy to these to people's stories and, you know, people are flawed and they can be mean. They can also be capable of great generosity. Mm. But, you know, nobody is either fits into a good or evil, you know, and that's to me, especially with literary fiction, that's what your your role is as the author to kind of interrogate that space between good and evil um, that's where the fun is in the writing as well and I think that's what Christos does so well so by the end of the book I don't think you really necessarily know which side you're on at exactly. the end of it actually yeah. um, everyone on every side is is so flawed um, that yeah you come you come out not not with more answers probably with more questions but that's not a bad thing not at yeah. all. It's a it's an incredible work of fiction, and it has um it's hard to believe it's only written eleven years ago. I feel like it's a contempt like a it's a classic, classic yeah. of Australian literature. Um, it was um it was turned into a uh, mini series, mm. eight episode mini series, one for each of the characters, same structure as the book, um, that was released in two thousand and eleven in Australia. And then in 2015, it was remade for a US audience. And so oh, yeah. they rewrote the screenplay. Um, 
I don't know why they have to remake everything. Well, I I think I know why. Yeah. Because Melissa George from Home and Away, um, (laughs) (laughs) she's a very accomplished actor. I take her back, but, you know, I know her as Angel from Home and Away. Very soft spot in my heart for Melissa George. Um, She played Rosie the yeah. mother of the child who got slapped in the Australian adaptation and the US adaptation. Mm-hmm. So I mm-hmm. think it's like work for Australian actors. They did yeah, it twice. Right. Okay, yeah. She yeah, had two great. different yeah. jobs. That's yeah. why. That's why. The US um, cast, Uma Thurman is in it. Oh. Peter Sarsgaard, Brian Cox, Thandie Newton, Zachary Quinto. Oh, wow. I never watched it. No, I, I was never really satisfied with the Australian version. <laughs> I didn't feel the Me need. Me too. I watched the trailer for the US oh, okay. version. Yeah. It's very much the same. Yeah. The Australian version, um, Melissa George, as, as previously mentioned and swooned over. Um, Alex Dimitriadis is in it. Jonathan LaPaglia. Essie Davis, who plays Miss Fisher. Mm, love, yeah, yeah. Love that. Yeah, yeah. Love her too. Soft spot. Um, <laughs> Diana Glenn, who won, I think, a, did she win a Logie for supporting actress maybe? Um, and Lex Marinos is in it as well. Mm. Um, I love that Anthony LaPaglia. Oh, sorry, John, not Anthony. His brother, Jonathan. <laughs> Anthony is the other brother. There's three brothers. There's three LaPaglias. It's confusing. It is. Um, my apologies. Jonathan LaPaglia, Italian. I love that he's Greek in this. It's okay. Mm. <laughs> It's all the same. <laughs> you said it. I don't know. I did. I can say it. You I'm can, Italian. I can know. say that. It's all the same. Um, but I, I do love that. I, I, I do love that about the t- TV adaptation. What I love about the audio book is that Alex Dimitriadis reads it. Oh, right. Yeah. So in preparation for this podcast, I read the first chapter, yep. uh, Hector. I watched the first ep- episode of the TV series mm-hmm. and then I listened to the Rosie chapter of the audio book and the last chapter, which is Richie. Yeah. And so I, cover to cover, maybe not. Yeah. But I feel completely immersed in the visual and the audio and the physical book. Um, and and that to me just kind of reminded me of how good this book is. Mm. Like as a piece of fiction, as a story, um, its structure, its content, the complexity of the characters, the questions it made me ask myself about, you know, it, is it ever okay to hit a child? That's really the mm. fundamental mm. part of, of the slap. And, um, you know, it's not, it's not so easy to answer that no, question. No. It's not having, you know, the way you were raised, whether yep. you were slapped as a child, like so, that comes into it when you're mm. thinking, is it ever okay? It's not, it's not okay, but someone hit me. So I guess maybe it was okay when I was a kid, Yeah, but it's not okay. Is it ever, or you can hit your own kids. No, but I don't have kids. So I would have to hit other people's kids. Can I hit your kids? Yeah. Like, is that yeah. Ever, like, yeah. I know. It's all of that yeah. unanswered questions, but the fact that it's, you know, I read it 10 years ago and I hadn't thought about it since. And it, now it's just like, I've been immersed in it in the last week. It's still relevant and interesting and it's just, it's really good writing. It's really Yeah, I agree. Writing. I mean, I, I haven't reread it since I first read it, um, you know, 10 years ago or whatever it was. Um, but in the lead up to here, just um, reading around it, reading interviews with Christos, I, you know, I could just retrieve mm. the images from when I read it. Yep. And they were just there. It was so vivid that it didn't require me to go back and read word for word. I just, I had the story in my head, which I think 
is amazing because how many books do you read and you actually don't have a great memory of the story or what happened? You might have just a sense of the book. But with this book, I have much more than a sense. I have, I don't know if it's partly because then I watch the series as well, but I, what I'm imagining and retrieving in my head is not the, this miniseries. It's my own, you know, imagination of these characters. And so I think that's, the, that's what you want as a writer, to be able to do that. Um, and the other thing is I read it before I had kids. <laughs> and there so now go. I have two kids. And so, you know, maybe where I, what I thought at the time of reading it is different to what I thought now. But I guarantee um, you it will bring up different <laughs> questions. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, totally. A lot um, can change in 10 years. And um, the origin story for this book is very interesting as well. Tell um, me. Christos talked about it in the Guardian article when it came out. And um, so it actually was a barbecue that he had. I don't know. It was a family barbecue. I don't know where exactly it was. Um, but his his mother was in the kitchen kind of cooking. And um, I think it was a friend's child was, you know, pulling out pots and pans from the, <laughs> from the cupboards as they do. And um, his, Christos's mum kind of got a bit frustrated and gave him a, a little, little, Christos is at pains to point out that it was a very mild, <laughs> <laughs> that little slap on the bottom, of, uh, you know, a fun little slap. And this um, preschooler kind of said, nobody's allowed to touch my body without my permission. And um, apparently everyone in the room kind of just burst out laughing. Um, but Christos described that as a gift for him as a writer because that scene just stayed with him and and later on as he was leaving this barbecue he was thinking imagine this his mom who grew up you know in this Greek village where it was pretty common to kind of just slap your kids and discipline them quite harshly then in her later life, being told by a three-year-old that you're not allowed to um, touch me with my body without my permission, and just I guess it caused him to reflect on the the, the generational gap, the divide, the cultural, the migration that was separating them, that all this kind of um, yeah, these issues that were so pertinent at you know in contemporary Australia, and that's that's how the novel kind of emerged. Um, so it's a great origin story. You know, as a writer, you, you, once your book's out, that's what you have to go <laughs> around with, talking the origin story of your book. And um, we all want an origin story like Christos had for the slap. I, w- I wonder if his mum's getting royalties. <laughs> she initiated the slap. She did. Like, yeah. She but, did. yeah, I can just imagine her. You know, solid Greek migrant woman in a kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> being like having children under feet. Yeah. And, and I'm sure, you know, in my Italian migrant grandparents' kitchen, I probably got under their feet and yeah. copped a wooden spoon on the back of the knees yeah. <laughs> like crazy. Um, but yeah, that was just part of it, wasn't it? Yeah. It was just part of, yeah. part of growing up. And, you know, and as you say, in, within a generation or two, suddenly it's it's completely changed. The, yeah. the attitude towards disciplining children is its completely different. Yeah. I mean, 
I'm not that old. And it's, <laughs> and it's different between when I was a kid and now too. And it's not fixed in one person either. No. I mean, I see it within my family, my husband's family, you know, they were a bit more, my parents and my husband's parents who are Lebanese background, a bit more strict, a bit more traditional, but gosh, with the grandchildren, they are the biggest softies, Absolutely. you know, in the world. <laughs> yes. So, um, and you know, if we ever kind of come down hard on the kids, I say, oh, come on, you know, <laughs> leave them alone. Like when I was a kid, you would never let me get away with that kind of thing. Yes. So it's interesting as well. I mean, I guess the role is different. Grandparents are not traditionally the disciplinarians, but no, I think as well. Maybe in my family, they were a <laughs> Oh, <bit>. maybe, okay. <laughs> Um, there were definite rules. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, so I mean, we all change um, as well, our perspectives and things. But, yeah, I think Christos really tapped into something there with that, the title and just the premise. It's such a little thing, actually, when you tiny... think about it, but it can explode into this huge thing. And that's huge... what happened and sort of um, pitted this small community of people against each other. And yeah. I think what's... I think the fascinating thing is that I don't like anyone in this book and mm. I love this book. Exactly. And those two I felt the same exist. thing. And I've heard some people describe it as a misogynistic novel, which, oh. yeah, um, confused me because to have misogynistic characters and to write about them does not make it a misogynistic novel necessarily. Even because No, well, there definitely are misogynistic characters mm. in there, but... I think that the women are written very well. Exactly, yeah. I think that they're like all of the characters are quite fully fleshed out and they you know, they reminded you of people in the community that yeah. you work in. They certainly reminded me of people that I've met and known in my life, not naming <laughs> names specifically. But you know, they're quite real. Oh, definitely. And you can you can like someone and be friends with them for a long time and then suddenly they're not the person you remember or they mm. take a completely different um, political stance to what mm. you imagine them to be or to the, the opinions that you have and all of a sudden you're like, how do I still know this person? How do I know this person? Mm. And that's exactly what happens in this book. This is a group of friends who met in their 20s when they were single and wild and going out and partying and now they're 40 and they've got kids and they're raising them in different ways and some the socioeconomic stuff has changed. But, you know, some of them married up, some of them married sideways. You mm. know what I mean? Like yeah. they kind of have completely different circumstances to each other now and so the way that they relate is different and the way they choose to raise their own kids is different among among that friendship group and then something like this sort of small act of violence takes place and they all divide on lines that they weren't expecting each other to. Mm. And so they're examining not only um, the incident and what they think about that but then also the people around them and mm. what, they, what they now think of people who they have adored their whole lives. Mm. Yeah. So it's making them rethink all of their friendships as well. And that's real. I mean, that happens. Yeah. And the other thing... I loved about it was, you know, it, it featured a multicultural cast, mm-hmm. let's say, but it did so in, I don't think, a self-conscious way, you know. It just happened that this person was from this background and this, and that really rang true for me, um, you know, um, because so often we don't see that representation in Australian literature and to see this book go international, get longlisted for the booker. Mm. And it's, yes, representing flawed characters, but a kind of true uh, taste of 
of you know contemporary Australia from the point of view of uh, multiculturalism was I think um, great as well because mm. I feel like so much of the literature we export or at least appeals to the international readers is that traditional bush narrative um, you know when the reality is that most of us live in cities Correct. actually <laughs> the quintessentially um, quintessentially Australian bush novel yeah it's not that I mean there's a our population is quite spread across the country but um yeah it's the urban grittiness suburbanness mm. of this book I think that that gives it such a wide appeal well, I think if if all we read, if most of us live in the cities, in these multicultural communities, but all that we really read or consume is about remote regional bush narratives, then we're not really examining ourselves mm-hmm. so much. It allows us to continue on with this, you know, enchantment with, you know, the natural landscape of Australia and those, um, you know, stories. But it gets us off the hook because we don't have to interrogate the lives that we're leading. And I think, again, in that Guardian interview I read with Christos, he really wanted to examine, you know, middle-class suburban Australia and in particular that kind of Howard era where we had enjoyed such prosperity But as he pointed out, we were starting to be very ungenerous with each other and starting to be quite xenophobic. And look where we are now (laughs) since, you know, 10 years down the track. Um, And so, Mm. yeah, I think maybe that's why it's so divisive that people just find it so confronting Mm because maybe they actually see a bit of themselves in there and they actually just don't like it. It's making them uncomfortable. Yep. Um, you know, I really don't think Christos was light on any character. Like he, he was quite harsh on all of them quite equally. Yeah. It's warts and, and all for everyone. Yeah. And I think that's what I like about it. Yeah. Yeah. We could talk about the slap all day. So we, we, could. we will do that after we turn <laughs> the microphones off. But before we do, I have a final question for you. What are you currently reading? Oh, I'm catching up on a lot of books that I um, missed over the past few years because I was reading for work. So right now in my bag, I've got Home Fire by Camilla Shamshi. Shamshi, right? yes, yes. A gorgeous book. Yes, which I'm very really full on book, but really good. Mm, yeah, not not like anything I've read before. Yeah, um, yeah. Again, very great, flawed, complex characterization and. Yeah, I'm really enjoying that. Yeah, the bonds of family is in that That's book. That's right, yeah. The threads of siblings and, yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Mm. And another one I've enjoyed recently was um, Lanny. Oh, yeah, Max yeah. Porter. Yeah. Gorgeous, isn't it? Yeah. It's kind of a wild, it's imaginative kind it of is. romp of It is, yeah. Book. I mean, I read Grief is a Thing with Feathers on an aeroplane. I don't know why I did that. that must have, did you dissolve? Like, I was bawling. <laughs> That was How just, did you do that? I don't know. You're a magician. Someone should have warned, warned me. I'm not a magician. I was bawling. People were looking at me well, the strangely. The fact that you read it, though, you didn't, you, weren't, you didn't get five pages in and say, oh, this is not for a flight. <laughs> that, that's true. Away. But it's compelling. It is compelling. Um, yeah. There's a magpie who oh, talks. I, I mean, needed to keep reading to compelling? find out if they were going to be okay. And that's what I wanted to, you know, I wanted to make sure they were going to be okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. And they kind of were book. at the end. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. To, they were. There was hope. To a degree. Yeah. But Lanny, yes. Yeah. Glorious. Yeah. 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 No, I I think it was good to read Grief first, so I kind yes. of understood his style. If I Maybe if I'd picked up Lanny, I would have been a bit like, what is this? Mm. Um, but he, he's a bit of a magician himself, yeah, Max Porter. Yeah, he is. Yeah. I listened to the audiobook of Grief is the Thing with Feathers oh, okay. while I was doing some uh, cross-stitching. And so this piece that I made is forever imbued with that story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's funny how that happens. The association yeah. is amazing, yeah. yeah. And so when Lanny came out, I thought, I don't think I can listen to it. I think I need mm. to physically read this one. And I'm really glad that I did because I felt like – pulled into the book, like in the, is it the never-ending story where he falls into the book or a hand comes up oh, and grabs yeah, him or something? Yeah. That's how I felt with Lanny. I felt like I was pulled into the book and into that world. Yeah. Um, Although I'm curious about the audio book because with that dead Papa Toothwart stuff, yes. like I'm wondering how they did all the sounds for that. That would have That's been. a great question. Probably would make quite a good audio book, I yeah, think. Yeah, very theatrical. Yeah. I love audio books. Do you listen to them? I haven't read to listened to a lot. Um, yeah, I I when I had a had to do a bit of driving, I listened to Omar Musa's book, and um, God, the title escapes me right now. Um, the anyway, he he re, he reads the book himself, which is I just really appealed to me an author reading his book in his own voice, and yes. he's got such a great voice and is a performer, of course. Himself, so yeah, um, I enjoyed that experience. Um, but generally, I like the tactile mm. experience of books. What about the books you've written? Are they available as audio books? They are. Yeah, they are both. And did you narrate them? No, I didn't. I wasn't invited to. Actually. <gasps> what? <laughs> Melanie, I think it's quite a big commitment too. Oh, and gosh. and the the actors that have read my books are, are really wonderful. So, okay. do yeah. you know who they are? Um, yeah, the latest one is um, Taylor Owens. Okay. Um, and you're testing me now. My brain's <laughs> hey, a okay. sieve for Australia Day. That's um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> is it one narrator? Because that's a collection of short stories with lots of different voices. It's one narrator. It's one narrator yeah, for that. Okay. One narrator. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. Yeah. They're available in audio. I can revisit both of them. Oh. Thank you. And are you writing something at the moment? It's a sneaky question. It's not even in the script. I just asked it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not nothing long form yet. Okay. I have an idea. Um, I just finished an essay that will be coming out next year about um, aging. Not that I'm particularly old, but <laughs> they are having an edition in the Griffith Review called Getting On. Yep. And I guess it's um, very topical now with the results of the Royal Commission into Aged Care coming out next year. Um, so I actually wrote about... Um, the kind of dehumanising of elderly patients that occurs um, in tertiary hospitals and how I think I actually lost a lot of empathy for patients during my medical training and how I managed wow. to eventually rediscover a lot of that through general practice. Um, yeah, so it was quite a bearing of souls. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's quite self-reflective. Uh, yeah, nice. yeah. So I, um, I really enjoyed writing... The, the essay, I feel like it was something I really always wanted to say, um, mm. but I needed the distance of time to be able to write about it um, in a non-sentimental kind of way. Um, so, yeah, I can't wait till that comes out, but there's a long lead time on these things, so I'll have to keep waiting yeah. a bit longer. You and me both. <laughs> 
in the meantime, we've got plenty to read. We there's do. always plenty to read. Oh, there's too much to read. Yeah. If anything, since I've become a writer, I've realised exactly how much there is to read and <laughs> if you think too hard about it, it can become quite overwhelming. I work in buildings with I know. thousands and thousands and it? thousands of books. I don't know. I take them home. I borrow them. <laughs> I borrow them and they sit at home. Good. Yeah. I just remembered Omar Misses. I think it's Here Come the Dogs. Oh, yeah. I think you're right. <laughs> Yes. Oh, sorry. No, no. It's really bizarre. But don't apologise. You know how you have these yes. brain bubbles. Let it happen. Yeah. Let it come back to you. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me on your Desert Island, Melanie. It's very kind of you to invite me here. Oh, you're very welcome. You've been the best guest I could oh, have had you. on my Desert Island. Oh, we could talk about books here all day. And we shall. You can read this episode's show notes, including a list of all the books we've discussed. It'll be on our Goodreads page. You can find that on our website at www.melbournelibraryservice.com.au. Just look for the Read page. I'd also love to hear what you are taking with you to your desert island. Simply tweet at Library with the hashtag Desert Island Books and let me know those books that you simply cannot live without. You can download previous Desert Island Books episodes in your favourite podcast app at SoundCloud or iTunes. Simply search Melbourne Library Service. Happy reading!